both of these, service and love, help us become more like Jesus each day. And that's what Christianity is about. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 69th episode of Working with the Word. We are glad and excited to be back in the studio after taking a few weeks off while Jeff and Becca adjust to a new addition to their family. Today we are picking up our study of John in chapter 13, where Jesus not only teaches but demonstrates what real service and love look like. In our last episode, we read this section from chapters 13 through 17 and introduced it as the period of conference or conversation with the apostles. And we get the blessing of being a fly on the wall listening to this conversation. If you haven't already done so, we want to encourage you to please stop and read the chapter or listen to us read it in the last episode from about the 215 mark to the 620 mark. Before we go any further, Jeff, uh, I'm sure our listeners are eager to hear an update on how your family's doing. How's baby Lila doing? Well, at the time of recording this, uh, baby Lila is one month old and she has not slept all the way through the night, but has slept well a couple of nights early on, but has lost all of that. uh, (laughs) I don't don't necessarily want to call it progress, but it was just wherever she was. And uh, Becca and I are tired, just like anyone else who has had a newborn has been before, but we're making it and we're very happy to just have baby Lila and um, glad to be having a sense of routine again and have her in the routine as well. Absolutely. Well, what a blessing. Amen. That's right. Well, as we mentioned, the main point of chapter 13 is Jesus demonstrates and by his actions, he shows us what service and love look like. So how does Jesus do that in this chapter? Like we've mentioned in previous episodes, and like we'll just try to briefly remind ourselves of here, Jesus is stepping back from the public spotlight. We saw in chapter 12, we almost called it kind of, or I think we called it like his final public invitation or his announcement or call of just, this is my plea to you to come follow me, to know, you know, there's stakes just in fact that there will be judgment to happen as well, to know the seriousness of all of this. And Jesus is withdrawing from all of that, and here is about to have this conversation with his disciples. And before he really gets into the conversation, it starts off with a demonstration. Uh, This isn't like a, you know, a magic show or a PowerPoint of like, you know, how did we do financially this year as the apostles and Jesus? Uh, This is not that kind of demonstration. This is a demonstration of a lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to know. I wanted to point out the fact that we've seen a lot of I'm using the phrase emotionally charged moments in this gospel so far. Just things where you see Jesus's, whether you want to call it excitement or passion or anger or concern or frustration. So like, for example, in chapter two, he drives out the money changers. In chapter six, we see a little bit of, you know, pleading with the people from Jesus as the people are getting frustrated with him, as he's giving all this teaching about how they need to be followers of him and and eat of his body and drink his blood. We saw in chapter 11, Jesus is, you know, very deeply moved by Lazarus dying and that whole scene. So coming back to our TV analogy that we use from time to time, 
maybe in those moments you get some intense music to go with those scenes. Maybe as the crowds are uprising in uh, chapter six, you get some, there's lots of tension. You could, you know, back that up with a score of a TV show. I think over these next few chapters, this would be a very intimate type of TV. This would be, we just want the conversation. You know, those, those shows that you maybe not realize it until you actually think about it or pay attention with like, hey, there's no like background music. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of shows will have maybe a little bit of something, background noise, background music, but then you realize like, whoa, there's been this really intense conversation. I've been so wrapped up in this conversation that I didn't even notice that there's nothing else there. I think that while obviously John's not writing a TV show and, you know, he's, he's using a written medium instead, I think we can see a similar idea with all of that, that we're totally drawn into what Jesus is saying here. And... While the disciples are drawn in and while we're learning from them or really getting some interesting character studies from them, we're focusing on what Jesus is saying and doing, especially in this emotionally charged moments as Jesus is very concerned about his own disciples. I say all that because in chapter 13, verse 1, in part of that verse, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it talks about how he's going to have this time with them before the Passover feast and ultimately before he dies, before he's resurrected, and before he ascends. And all of this is stemming from Jesus' great love and care for these men who have spent the last three years following him around and being his disciples. So this intense conversation actually begins with a demonstration where Jesus is going to show his disciples and, through the writings of John, show you and me what it really means to be a servant, someone who is doing servant work. Not just, you know, Jesus doesn't just throw them an employee handbook and say, read this and then turn it into HR. He doesn't sit them through some horribly active training videos from, you know, (laughs) decades ago. Jesus himself, the one who is their master, who is their teacher, who is their Lord, gets down on his own hands and knees, very much in a sense here, and washes their feet. There's the point to be made about the fact that this would have been something that was most likely done by a non-Jewish slave in the household. You know, they're walking around. They're probably wearing sandals if they're wearing some type of footwear. They're walking in a place where there's a lot of dust. And so this would be a common practice you know, as you would come in. Here, as the dinner is getting started, Jesus is doing this. Maybe there's some symbolic significance in all this as well as Jesus is cleansing his disciples. As Jesus is cleansing them, you know, maybe metaphorically about trying, looking to cleanse them of their sin. But all of this, Jesus was making the point that I'm washing your feet to give you an example about how you're supposed to behave and be a servant to others as well. If I am getting down and serving you, you need to serve others too. Just briefly here, we want to talk about Peter. You know, poor Peter is the guy who we often remember from the Gospels who whenever something comes across his mind, you don't have to worry about Peter hiding that. He will very Mm -hmm. quickly bring that out to the forefront. And we see that a lot in this chapter. And we'll put a pin in Peter towards the end of this chapter. But he steps up and as Jesus comes to him, he says, Lord, what are you doing? And Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And they will understand, especially after the death and the resurrection, that Peter is very like, no, you don't need to do this. And there's just kind of this almost comical back and forth between them where Jesus says, I have to do it. Otherwise, you have no part in me. And so Peter's like, oh, well, you know, give me the whole treatment. I want everything. But Jesus says, no, that's not how this works either. And he makes the point. He tells them in verse 12, 
Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Some people take this literally, and if they do that, that's, I think, somewhat up to them. I don't think that's the literal point we're supposed to take. It's the symbolic teaching that Jesus shows us here, that how we're supposed to be servants of others. And Jesus, again, is demonstrating that, acting that out for us to notice and see. Yeah, one of the things that, when we were reading it together in the last episode, one of the things that stood out to me from chapter 13 was just how much detail John gives us and he really just slows down when he's talking about what Jesus does. Like in verse 4, Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with his towel. It's like all of these details that we're thinking about a scene, we're trying to picture this scene in our mind. John gives us all those details from point A to point Z about what Jesus is doing because he wants it to stick in our mind, just like it must have stuck in the disciples' mind, especially yeah. John's, right? Um, as we see, you know, him coming back to this in, like, in First and Second John. Right. There's obviously a very important conversation. It's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't care about this, or they just don't fo- necessarily focus on this. But John is obviously impacted by it, particularly. Uh, something that we see within these first 17 verses within this foot washing scene will help lead us into our next section as we think about Judas. In verse 2, there's the statement, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And in verse 11, Jesus is talking about how, you know, I'm here to, to clean all of you, but not all of you are clean. Or he says in verse 10, one doesn't need to wash anything except his feet because he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And a footnote is made, or the implication is made, that Jesus knows that someone's going to mm-hmm. betray him. And so we get some of that. We've seen some of that already as well in chapter 6, and I think even in chapter 12, we get some of those inklings. Clearly, but not clearly? I don't know. Emerson, <laughs> I'm going to kick this to you. We've talked about this section a lot. We have all kinds of questions that we're not going to get to today. But there's this section of Judas's betrayal being predicted. What's going on within this section? Yeah, so verses 18 through, through 30 is, is what we're looking at here. As you said, this is a very weighty and heavy moment. And you get that from verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And as we've seen in John already, we as the readers, we know who that is. Even, you know, without reading the gospel of John, we know how the story ends. We know Judas is the betrayer. We're told that in chapter 6 and verses 70 to 71. As we mentioned earlier in the chapter, verse 2, the devil had already put into Judas's heart. And so because we know who this is, it's kind of easy to pass over this section and miss what Jesus is really telling them. And the point is that they didn't know, like they didn't have a clue who he was talking about. The disciples started looking at one another. They were uncertain which one he was speaking about. Mm -hmm. So it's not like in the back of their minds, they thought, hmm, I wonder if it's Judas. (laughs) They didn't have any suspicions about him. Even John, who was apparently Jesus's closest friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he didn't know. And so mm-hmm. Simon had to tell him, you know, you're sitting right next to him. You ask Jesus who it is. And even after Jesus took the bread and dipped it in the bowl and gave it to Judas, it says in verse 28, no one of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him. I told him to go out. And so it's not like after Jesus identified him, they thought, 
yeah, I, I knew there was something funny about Judas. They still didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And that's what is really shocking about this is that apparently they trusted Judas. We're, we're told here that Judas was the treasurer. He had the money bag. And I, I would assume, this is a, an assumption on my part, but I think it's a good assumption, that that yeah. means that he, he was trusted. Maybe he was considered the most trustworthy or the, you know, the most reliable or most financially responsible. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, they didn't they give it to Matthew, him. did they? It's ironic yeah, they right. give the money to the tax collector, but there's probably a lot of intention on their part. Right. And and so think about what a shock it would have been for them in the in the garden later on in chapter 18 when Judas appears with the other soldiers and he identifies Jesus and like like that's a huge moment for the disciples who this really is right here. Mm-hmm. And so J- Jesus tells them this about Judas because he wants them to know that this was a part of the plan, that this wasn't, it wasn't a shock to Jesus. And that's really what he points out in verse 18. He says, the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. So he's quoting from a psalm. I believe it's Psalm 41 verse 9, where the psalmist is talking about someone who is a close friend. This idea of eating bread bread with me is talking about fellowship and you know you can be comfortable with someone that you're you're sharing a meal with and the thing that Jesus is pointing out is not only is this a part of God's plan that this has to happen this way but think about how the betrayal hurts and how it would have hurt Jesus not only mm-hmm. shocked the disciples and hurt them but this was Jesus's disciple this is someone that he had entrusted himself to Yet Judas is turning his back on him. He's stabbing in the back. And consider also that, you know, as we just talked about, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I don't think that as he went from person to person, man to man, disciple to disciple, that he got to Judas and he was like, oh, I'm going to skip you. <laughs> like yeah. he, he washed Judas's feet. And it's not like Again, he took out some steel wool and was really, really scrubbing Judas's feet because he really wanted them to bleed. No, he washed his feet just like everybody else. And so he showed his sacrifice. He showed his love for him. And still, Judas decides to betray him, which raises the question of how did, how, how did he make this choice? I think that's one of the questions we kind of talked about ahead of time is, what does this statement mean in verse 27 that Satan entered him? Yeah. It's one of those puzzling statements. How did this happen? I don't really know the answer to how all of that works from a spiritual perspective, but when you when you look at Judas's life, I think we see a lesson of how sin can easily kind of take over our lives. We see a progression from chapter 13, verse 2, when it says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So, The idea was already planted. I think that's talking about the initial temptation, whatever it was, whether it was the money that he could get out of it, whether it was the, you know, the fame. I tend to think it was the money because he was a thief, but it was the temptation that that Satan put into his mind. And then what's interesting is that in Luke 22, verse 3, it says that even before this moment, Satan entered into his heart, and that's what prompted him to go to the high priests and the elders, and to make preparations for that. So how did he handle that temptation? Well, he latched onto it, and he premeditated, and he made those preparations. 
And that leads us to verse 27 when he's identified. And at that point, there's a point of no return. There's no going back at that point. That's when Jesus says, get up, do it quickly. So you've got this progression from temptation to premeditation and preparation to action. And so at that moment, he gets up and he leaves and Mm -hmm. his decision's made. That's how sin works in our lives as well. So Judas is the ultimate pretender. He's sitting here with the other disciples, acting as if he's just one of them, acting as if he's just as loyal as they are, but his heart is really somewhere else. And that leads to a contrast with Peter. Peter's a very different kind of disciple than Judas was, isn't he? Yeah, we want to jump to the end of the chapter for just a moment, skipping over verses 31 through 35. That really seems to be like the big crescendo. We want to end on that note about love in just a second. At the end of this chapter, we have Peter's denial predicted in verse 36 through verse 38. Rather than, it seems with Judas, you know, Judas is a very interesting character in this chapter who, I mean, for the, I don't think has any recorded lines or words or anything like that. It's just all things we're getting glimpses into his heart through what Jesus is revealing and through mm-hmm. other motivation and other text where Peter, like we mentioned, uh, Peter shows great, if you want to call it courage, you could call it courage, boldness. He shows great curiosity. He shows a great blundering if we're trying to stick with C and B words for a little bit <laughs> and just kind of sticking his foot in his mouth kind of disease that we all suffer from from time to time. But Peter just is really determined to see things play out the way he expects them to. As Jesus is talking about this idea of loving one another, and he mentions earlier on in that section that I'm going to go away in a little while longer, and you'll look for me, but you cannot go where I am. And Peter asks in verse 36, where are you going? This idea of kind of like, you know, Jesus, I'm coming with you. And Jesus says, you know, you can't follow me right now, but you will follow later. And Peter is very determined to say, no, like, I've got great faith. I've got great action. I can go with you wherever. I'm going to die for you if I have to. I mean, it seems like there's some type of indication within the underlining text of what Jesus is saying and Peter's motivation that Peter goes from, okay, this isn't just talking about going from one town to the next. I mean, if, if Peter is talking about being willing to die, he understands there's some type of stakes that are being mentioned here. But Jesus is very clear about, will you? Would you really lay down your life for me? And in fact, what's going to happen is that you're going to deny me and then the rooster is going to crow. And so just think about hearing something like that from Jesus, one of your best friends, your teacher, your Lord, and you're just so confident that I would never betray, I would never hurt this person. But to have that person who you know knows the hearts of men and other people, you've seen all the things that he's done, and he looks at you and says, you're going to deny me before other people, it's one of the few moments it seems like where Peter really does shut up. Because as we go on, (laughs) we see in the next few chapters, we're in the same conversation, the same scene, but Peter doesn't show up again really or say anything again until we get to chapter 18. When in that moment again, things aren't going the way he expects them to, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but as Jesus is in the process of being arrested and the soldiers are grabbing him, Peter's pulling out his sword and he's chopping ears and doing all the things he can to keep it from happening. And Jesus rebukes him for that. And it just seems to really blow up Peter's world and to the point where he's frightened, he's concerned, he does end up denying Jesus. We'll see that play out even more in chapter 18. Hopefully talking about chapter 18 now doesn't take away from the weight of that moment when we get there. I want to really think about that. You know, All the moments that Peter is kind of that guy in the front of the apostles. He's 
chilling back. He's chewing on Jesus' words. Imagine those just echoing in his mind and how much more they're going to echo in whenever he actually hears the rooster crow in just a few days. But we'll save those character studies for another moment or move on from them to get to really what is the highlight of this section, where after Judas leaves the scene, we get to what's called the new command or this new commandment that Jesus gives. We want to pay very much attention to that. So what is this new commandment, Emerson? Yeah, very much so we want to pay attention to that because in verse 34 and 35, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I read those verses intentionally to emphasize that three times in those two verses, he says specifically, love one another. That's really what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. This new section, though, begins in verse 31 with saying, when Judas had left, then Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. So with Judas leaving the room, Jesus is now able to speak openly and freely about this matter that's really important. And I think that also kind of plays into this. We need to see the scene. We need to see the weightiness of it and feel it. Judas is not really with them anymore. And so now he's able to really emphasize what he wants them to do, the next steps for his disciples. Right. And that's to love each other. And it's interesting the way he puts it. He says, I give you a new command. And that can be a little bit confusing especially when you read 1 John chapter 2, 7 and 8, when John kind of picks up on that and he says, I'm not writing you a new commandment, one, but one that you've had from the beginning. And then he, the very next verse, he says, it's a new commandment. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, what's Jesus talking about? On one level, this is not a new commandment. This isn't anything, it's not like the disciples are hearing this for the very first time. Yeah. Because the Old Testament, even way back in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So this was an Old Testament commandment. It was understood to be one of the greatest commandments with the conversation Jesus had with the lawyer earlier. There is, you know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said we ought to even love our enemies. So this isn't like new information to them. I think what's new about it is maybe the standard of love, mm-hmm. if, if we can put it that way. Yeah. It's not a new standard. Like it's not a, it's not changed, but maybe maybe a good way to put it is the, the standard has been more clearly defined. Mm-hmm. We see a personal and a very visible demonstration of what true love is, not only with Jesus girding himself with a towel and washing his disciples' feet, but in just a few hours, these disciples are going to witness Jesus nailed to a cross. And they won't understand that, but they will come to understand that he did that for them and for everybody, even his enemies. And that's, that's what it's about. So he says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. I think that's the new standard, as I have loved you. And so Jesus's service, his sacrifice, I think more clearly defines what it means to, to love, that we are willing to sacrifice self. And in verse 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a unique love. This is what sets Christians apart from the world. That doesn't mean that non-Christians can't love people. I mean, I've seen non-Christians do selfless, sacrificial things before, 
But there's something different about Christian's love, that there is a higher motivation, that there is a deeper reason for that. We love because God loved us first, and he showed us, he taught us what that means. It's as a completely self-sacrificing and others serving love. I want to go to 1 John chapter 3 for just a second because, as we've mentioned, kind of danced around before, John really picks up on a lot of these themes in his letters. We know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the way God has loved us. But I think 1 John 3.16 should be ingrained in our memory too. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So if God loved us that way to give his son to the point of death, then what does that mean for us? That means to love means to do the same thing for other people. This has to be done through measurable action, right? Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. So, It's not enough just to say, I love you, but we show that through our actions. And this isn't a cheap love where we just define love as like accepting or something like that. This isn't a cheap feeling kind of thing, but it's costly to us sometimes. We can't say we love without some application to back it up. It certainly costs Jesus a lot, and this kind of love costs us a lot, but it's worth it because we know people are valuable. We know that People have souls, and of course, that reflects what what Jesus has done for us. So that takes us back to the main point, right, of this chapter. Jesus shows us what it means to love. He shows us what it means to love, what it means to be a servant, and he's going to continue to run with some of those themes, especially the idea of loving one another, even in the rest of the conversation over the next two or three chapters, and bringing up that theme even more. And that's why we need to talk about and show love so much within the church and to those who are non-Christian neighbors and friends, because that's how people are going to see Jesus. That's how we can show people that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. When you read John 13, stuff about Peter, all the questions we have about Judas are really interesting things to consider or talk about. But the so what really comes down to the really important part of this chapter is the lesson that Jesus teaches about what it really means to be a servant and really tied in with that is this idea of what it means to love and how both of those are going to require action. Service requires action. Love requires action. Both of those are required for all of Jesus' disciples to follow through with, not just the people who go above and beyond, not just the leaders. Very much leaders should be examples of this and Hopefully are those who are doing this, but all people will know who Christians are because Christians should be doing these kinds of things. Both of these, service and love, help us become more like Jesus each day, and that's what Christianity is about. We've seen the evidence for Jesus being the Son of God and believing in him, and so if John has convinced us, and even though we haven't gotten to the end, I'm trying to find some way to tie in John 20, 30, and 31, right? Because that's (laughs) what we always do. And while there's not necessarily anything, I'll carefully say, there's not anything new that's building our faith as far as like a sign that we've seen in some of the previous Mm -hmm. chapters. There's not really anything like that. I mean, we see Jesus washing feet. Um, That's not necessarily supernatural or miraculous, but it does build our faith or challenge us or change us in what Jesus is calling us to do to be more like him. And so 
if I'm going to be someone who looks forward to eternal life, that means I'm going to be like Jesus now in this life. And that's what really this chapter seems to be all about. Yeah, which leads us to our challenge, which is very actionable today. Love is something we need to put into action. We want to challenge you and challenge ourselves. This isn't just something that we're asking you to do that we're not willing to do ourselves, but Mm -hmm. we want to identify one person in our congregations, our neighborhood, our family, wherever that person may be, but identify just one person and intentionally serve them in practical ways this week, thinking about how Jesus served his disciples. How can we serve one another? Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Next episode, we'll continue this period of conversation into John 14. We have another I Am statement and some important teachings about our home, about obedience, and about the Holy Spirit. We hope you'll join us next week as we keep reading and studying and keep growing together. Until then, if there are questions, topics, books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.